0: Hello and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lizenby and I'm Kate Ballou. How was the poetry brothel this weekend, Kate? I saw a picture of you performing as Bambi and I just love to see it because I feel like I'm getting a glimpse um, of you from like a past life or like a parallel life or something equally as special. Thank
1: you. Yeah, the show went went great. Um, for those that don't know, I play a cabaret cowgirl named Bambi in a burlesque poetry show here in the city.
0: I love it. And I don't know, this might feel kind of off topic, but I felt like when I saw those images, I just wanted to ask you, um, because I often get asked, as I'm sure you do, how to put yourself out there Um, because being vulnerable is hard for many of us, but it's obviously also a doorway to something great. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as a fellow introverted, soft soul, kind-hearted witch, do you have any practical or magical thoughts on getting over shyness and being seen when it comes to our art?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Whiskey. <laughs> um no, I'm kidding. All jokes aside, uh it is it's really scary and difficult. You know, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that I still like didn't still get nervous before every performance that I ever do. You know, even just facilitating and teaching online workshops like Kristen and I know we talk about, but um mm-hmm. you know, one of the fun things about being in a burlesque sort of variety show situation is that I get to be A character. Um, And so it's really hard to feel shy when I'm wearing like lingerie and big cowboy boots and like stomping around on a bar. (laughs) Um, I think that if you join communities where the facilitators are supportive, um, you can kind of get coaching to help you get where you need to go. Like, I definitely didn't show up to that cast doing what I do now. You know, it took a lot of cheering on from folks who have kind of grown into my family from the last five years um, in the Poetry Society of New York community. And I just think my biggest advice is to just continue to show up for your art and for your community. Like, I'm usually under the impression that the people in the audience are Kind And that they want me to succeed in the poem as much as I want to succeed in the poem. So I try to make eye contact with a few of them. You know, it reminds me that we're all connected and that people are never judging me as much as I'm judging myself, which thank goddess for that.
0: (laughs) Right. I love all these suggestions. So thank you. Thank you. I agree that wearing a mask, um, you know, your mask being Bambi, playing a character can really help us get used to speaking in public and teaching classes or just being seen. So thank you for those insights.
1: Thank you. And of course. But
0: back to business now. Mm -hmm. What are we talking about today?
1: We are talking about rituals of fire
0: Yes, we realize that on Magic and Alchemy, we've talked about water magic, the magic of air, um, wind, you know, birds and feathers, and we talk about earth magic constantly. So it only felt right that we venture into the flames today. Magic sounds exciting, and maybe even a bit scary sometimes, but when you think about it, just like the other elements, water, earth, air, we are quite literally dependent on fire. We rely on fire to cook, heat our homes, and to light our way. We also have our sun, the massive ball of cosmic fire that warms the planet and makes it habitable for humans, animals, plants, and so on. Fire is purifying. We can use it to boil water or foods that might be questionable to eat or drink. And for many, many years, land guardians and indigenous communities use controlled burns to clear dead brush and promote the health of certain vegetation. Depending on how it was used, fire was and still is potent medicine. So in honor of this element, I did some research on fire rituals, how fire was used in ceremony and magic, and what we have to gain through working with fire in our own practices. And I can't help it, but when I think of fire, I think of cooking, I think of kitchen witches and hearth magic, the Greek goddess Hestia, or the Celtic goddess Caridwen, who is likely stirring her bubbling cauldron as we speak. Yes. From the Dictionary of Symbols by J.E. Surlot, which is my companion book as of late, it says, quote, the hearth is a form of domestic sun, a symbol of the home, of the conjunction of the masculine principle, fire, with the feminine, the receptacle or the cauldron, and consequently of love, end quote. The word hearth is similar to heart, perhaps because the hearth fire was considered the heart of a home. From an article I did for the Magic and Alchemy blog last year, quote, Hestia does not represent the hearth. She is the hearth. She personifies fire, heat, and light, the things that nourish us. In Greek mythology, Hestia is one of the 12 original Olympians. She is the eldest daughter of Rhea and Cronus and sister to Zeus and Demeter. Since Hestia was tasked with caring for the hearth fire in her own home, she spent most of her life indoors. Even though she is not as well-known as her siblings, as the goddess of hearth and home, Hestia was honored before and after each meal. In the old world, whether someone had concerns over domestic life or familial friction or just wanted the goddess's attention, they could offer her a goblet of wine and the largest slice of whatever lay on their table. Although Hestia is considered a goddess of few words, Aristotle said that anytime our fireplace pops, hisses, or crackles, the goddess is speaking.
1: I totally believe it. Um, Whenever I'm doing candle magic, I always pay attention to the way the flame makes noise or changes in direction or size.
0: Yeah, and I do the exact same thing. And as you were saying that, I was thinking of Amanda, a.k.a. Pretty F and Spooky on Instagram, who we had on the podcast earlier in the season. Um, I don't know if you remember, Kate, but when she was telling us her Ouija story and how they were asking Spirit to do something about the fly buzzing around in the room, um, and then not even a second later, the fly flew into the lit candle and was incinerated. How could I forget?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was a definite sign.
0: Without a doubt. And but going back to what we were saying, I just love uh, this idea the hissing, crackling fire as the voice of the goddess. And maybe that ties into the popularity of fire scrying or divination through fire. Just like scrying or indirectly gazing into a mirror, water, or another shiny reflective surface, we can peer into the flames and summon answers. While looking at the dancing flames, we might see images, hear things, or receive thoughts that seemingly come from thin air, or in this case, fire. For fire scrying, we don't need a bonfire or anything grand. A single candle on our altar will do just fine. Scrying is a great way to flex and practice second sight or inner sight, and because the element of fire is tied to protection, survival, nourishment but also boundaries, transformation, and creativity, it leaves the door open for all sorts of magical workings and unconscious revelations. Many times, fire scrying ties into candle magic, but not always. Fire scrying is a form of candle magic, but candle magic might also incorporate color magic. So, you know, for example, choosing a green or yellow candle for calling in love or abundance, earth energy, or solar-inspired rituals. I know that when I'm working with candles, I love to etch a word or sigil into the wax with the intent that when the candle has burnt down, the message has been sent out into the ether. People can also dress their candles, either with herbs or essential oils that mirror their intentions. And if fire scrying doesn't resonate with you for whatever reason, you can also drop bits of melted wax into a bowl of water and then divine a message from the hardened bits. The size of a candle can also play a role in candle magic. So if we're doing like a 20-minute ritual, then probably any candle will do. But for those doing more involved spells, choosing a candle with like a three-day or seven-day burn time is something to consider. Um, And also makes me think about the episode we did with Maya Toll, where she was talking about one of her teachers and mentors in Ireland uh, who was a devotee of Brigid her mentor would keep an eternal flame burning for Bridget on her altar. Mm. Maya said that keeping that flame lit, even as she transferred it from one candle to the next, was a crucial element in her spiritual and magical practice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That was a beautiful conversation. And I just love thinking about the layer of like care and devotion and commitment that goes into a practice like that. And I'm sure it makes Bridget smile.
0: Speaking of Brigid, one of our favorite triple goddesses, Mm -hmm. Brigid is known as the keeper of the sacred flame. From the same article I mentioned earlier, it reads, Celtic myth tells us that Brigid, also known as Bride, carries a flame in the palm of her hand. As the goddess of poetry and ruler of the forge, Brigid sparks and maintains our creative fires— Her endless flame has the power to purify and heal, and her role as a triple goddess ensures that transformation is one of her many gifts. Bridges' nickname is the Flame of Ireland. Legend says that she was born at sunrise with a beam of light radiating from her head into the heavens. For many generations, her shrine at Kildare and its eternal flame was tended to by 19 priestesses. As the keeper of the sacred flame, we embody Bridget by stoking and s'moring our hearth fires, both in the literal and metaphorical sense, because maintaining a long lasting flame, even if it's only a lit candle, is a form of quiet devotion. It's also a way to honor the people who dedicate their lives to nurturing and protecting the home. End quote. So among her many gifts, Bridget is a healer which is perhaps a nod to the healing, transformative power of fire. As many of us know, the eight Sabbaths on the wheel of the year are tied to fire, specifically a need fire. I've talked about need fires before, I think in relation to Yule, but basically, a need fire is a sacred, intentional fire. Sometimes specific types and sizes of wood are gathered, and instead of using a torch or a piece of an existing fire to start the need fire, it's done through friction. While I think any Sabbath is reason enough to work with a need fire, uh, especially right now at Litha. Traditionally, it was the cross-quarter days of Imbolc, Llamas, Samhain, and Beltane that were associated with the element of fire. A community bonfire would serve as a meeting place for locals feasting, dancing, and sometimes hopping over the flames. At Imbolc and Beltane, farmers would make two fires and walk their animals through the smoke, which was believed to offer protection and good luck. But... These fires were also symbols of protection, a way to ward off any malevolent spirits that may be wandering too close to the living while the veil is thin. There are so many examples of people using fire to establish boundaries in the real world, but in the world of stories and myth, I have to think of Baba Yaga. Mm-hmm. Baba Yaga famously lives in the forest in a house with chicken legs, and the walkway up to her door is marked with flaming skulls. Again, these fiery skulls are great at deterring most passerbys who might be tempted to pay the grandmother a visit, but in the story of Vasilisa the Beautiful or Vasilisa the Wise, Vasilisa goes to Baba Yaga's house asking for fire and, you know, without giving away the ending for those who don't know the story, um, it's this spooky flaming skull that saves the day at the end and provides a semblance of happily ever after.
1: think about fire magic I think about salamanders and elementals. I remember first being introduced to this concept through a series of young adult novels when I was probably around 11 or 12 and I have probably never seen salamanders or the natural world the same since. I cannot for the life of me find the titles of these books so I'm going to ask my mom to do a sweep of our bookshelves later and I'll let you know. Um, it's also important to say that I found some critiques of Paracelsus and his work, um, you know, as with many figures in history. So I share his perspectives, um, as a facet of occult history and not as a personal doctrine, so to speak, but let's get into it. Um, An elemental is a mythic being that is described in occult and alchemical works from around the time of the European Renaissance, especially the 16th century works of Paracelsus. Paracelsus, born Theophrastus von Hohenheim, was a Swiss physician, alchemist, and philosopher of the German Renaissance. According to Paracelsus and his followers, there are four categories of elementals, which are gnomes, undines, sylphs, and salamanders, and these correspond to the four elements, earth, water, air, and fire, respectively the elementals have two vital functions, according to Paracelsus. They indicate and warn of future events, such as political and economic upheavals, and they act as guardians over nature. Specifically, the nature spirits, especially the salamanders, make and protect tremendous treasures in tremendous quantities. They steadily reveal these to humans, thereby explaining why it is that we slowly discover new mineral sources and iodes of precious metal. There are salamanders, the amphibians, of course, and then there are their larger than life elemental nature component salamanders are often described as small lizards in these tales but have also been known to be depicted as small glowing lights and on some occasions traditional fairy-like beings in some fairy legends salamanders are credited with having taught humans how to make fire and there are versions of these origins stating that they were created in the furnaces of glass blowers who kept their furnaces stoked for several days and several nights In addition, or sometimes instead of fire symbolism, salamanders were attributed a powerful poison. Some legends say that merely by falling into a well, salamanders would poison the water, and by climbing a fruit tree, poison the fruit. Its highly toxic breath was reportedly enough to swell a person until the skin broke, and in some tales they supposedly did the same to herds of cattle. This gained salamanders the name of Bellow's Breath. Like the real animal, the legendary salamander breathed seldom. Unlike the real salamander, the only way to kill one was to be said to lock it in a confined space so that it breathed its own poison. In some folklore, salamanders are feared so much that people dare not say their name for fear they would hear and then kill them. The salamander is also mentioned in the Talmud as a creature that is a product of fire, and it relates that anyone who is smeared with its blood will be immune to harm from fire. Leonardo da Vinci wrote about the salamander saying, they have no digestive organs and get no food but from the fire, in which it constantly renews its scaly skin. The salamander, which renews its scaly skin in the fire, for virtue." In his book, Mermaids, Sylphs, Gnomes, and Salamanders, Dialogues with the Kings and Queens of Nature, William R. Mistel introduces these mythical beings, saying, Salamanders, fire manifestations, are the expression of will, power, intensity and ardor, spiritual and erotic. Her incendiary nature can make them volatile and dangerous for those who interact with them. The salamanders are as varied in their grouping and arrangement as either the undines or the gnomes. There are many families of them, differing in appearance, size, and dignity. Sometimes the salamanders were visible as small balls of light. Paracelsus wrote, Salamanders have been seen in the shapes of fiery balls or tongues of fire, running over the fields or peering in houses. The most likely basis for this myth is found in real-life salamanders which are known to hibernate through the winter in logs that were then picked up and used to fuel fires. As a result of being tossed into a roaring inferno, they would wake up and walk out of the fire as if being born from the fire itself. Due to their cool and damp skin, they would be able to survive the escape from the flames. As such, it was misunderstood that salamanders were entities of fire. But you know, I preferred to believe in a little bit of fire magic instead. Thank you for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kate Baloo and Kristen Lizenby. You can find us online at k8baloo and at eastandalchemy. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at, podcast at TamedWild.com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog magicandalchemy.com
0: tune into next week's episode where we have two very special guests with us just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it so mode it be or something better until next time